Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Well, welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to announce that we have Morgan Aldis back with us today for another episode on alchemy, this time talking about the alchemy of beatitude going through the Beatitudes and looking for correspondences with the alchemical process. Welcome back, Morgan. Thanks. It's good to be back. It's great to have you. The last episode we had with you on the podcast, Morgan, was about just the alchemy of religion and just introducing the ideas of alchemy to an audience that maybe isn't really familiar with them. And that was a very successful episode for us in terms of just our own fulfillment and really enjoying the the discussion that we had. We've had great feedback as well. So we decided to bring you back and, and take a deeper dive on what alchemy can do for us as we're evaluating different parts of scriptural texts. And we've chosen the Beatitudes because it's really the core of the gospel. And so you've prepared some thoughts about how the Beatitudes might be further enlightening for us through the frame or lens of alchemy. And maybe you could just introduce some basic thoughts about how you're approaching that topic. Yeah, absolutely. So last time you had me on, we talked about some of these alchemical dictums and the way that we can relate them to the ordinances. You know, we, we for example, we talked about the sacrament and this idea of salve et coagula, separate and recombine. And we talked about, you know, the way that the sacramental bread is broken up and then distributed. And then this idea that we embody the resurrection by coming together and and seeking those Zion relationships and everything. So that way the, the body of Christ is separated, but is, is then brought back together through our actions during the week after we partake of the sacrament. And so what I thought would be interesting would be to see if we can learn some, like you were saying, Riley, learn some things about the Beatitudes by looking at them through an alchemical lens. And the the Beatitudes are really interesting. I, I was thinking just the other day about how in the church we, you know, to quote or to paraphrase Nephi, we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we prophesy of Christ, that our children may know to what source they may look for the, a remission of their sins. And so, you know, we, we believe in Jesus, we, we strive to follow him, we talk about him, but it seems to me, at least in my experience, is we don't talk a lot about what he actually said. That's one thing that I really like about this podcast, Latter-day Contemplation, and the, the Latter-day Peace Studies Project overall, is it's really as I followed it, it's really caused me to take a deeper look at what Jesus actually said. And the Sermon on the Mount is really the pinnacle of what he said. And, we, you know, we find it both in the New Testament and a very, very, very similar version in the Book of Mormon. The 
opening of both of these sermons, both the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and the, the Sermon on at the Temple in the Book of Mormon, is these, these Beatitudes, these blessings that are pronounced right up front. So I wanted to, to take a look at those and see what we can learn alchemically that might make them more practical in our discipleship. Love it. And in verse 1 of the Beatitudes in the Matthew version uh, in chapter 5, it talks about him ascending a mountain prior to delivering his address. And in the Sermon at the Temple, of course, he's in a temple. You know, we talk about yes. within our culture that mountains are, are excuse me, uh, yeah, mountains are symbolic temples and, and maybe even vice versa. What the, what significance might that play? And is that a good entry point for the discussion? Yeah, I think so. Because in alchemical literature, in alchemical texts, mountains and temples are very much a symbol that you find representing the work of of working towards obtaining the Philosopher's Stone or the Elixir of Life or, or whatever the ultimate goal of, of a particular alchemical operation is. One thing that, that I think is interesting, that the whole reason why I thought this may be something worth discussing, is the Beatitudes in a lot of commentaries going back 2,000 years are compared to a ladder. The Prophet Joseph Smith famously compared the principles of the gospel to a ladder, that you start at the bottom and you, you ascend up. And so these Beatitudes are an ascension text. Encoded in them is what we need to do and what kind of people we need to become in order to ascend in our discipleship to become like Christ. In alchemy, there are, in these texts, there are these images of stairways or ladders or mountains, and these different chemical operations are identified with these different rungs. And so seeing that similarity, I wanted to, to see what correspondences we could find between chemical operations and these spiritual operations of the Sermon on the Mount and see what we could learn by kind of having a discussion where we cross-pollinate these two ladders and see if there's anything similar between the steps. Awesome. Let's do it. It may seem obvious to most people, but what is the, what is the uh, significance of ladders and mountains and ascension, both in religious texts and alchemical texts? Yeah, I, I think that so last, last time you had me on the podcast, we talked a little bit about uh, catabasis or catabasis and anab anabasis, anabasis, this idea that there's a descent and then a rise. In the church, we talk about the three pillars of the plan of salvation is the creation, the fall, and the atonement. And so we're in this fallen state, and the invitation now is to ascend back up to our heavenly home. That's very explicit in our temple ordinances. I wanted to today discuss and make more explicit how that idea is encoded in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Why don't we start then with the first Beatitude, or if you've got a different direction you want to take the beginning of this, how, how do you want to start that discussion with, with respect to the Beatitudes? Yeah, I say we just jump right in and, and go to that first rung of the Beatitude ladder. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We 
talked about this a little bit last week, right? We mentioned, or last time we had you on the podcast, we mentioned the idea that this first step is actually the katabasis, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's something that I, I think is really interesting. A lot of these ascension texts and everything, there's this idea that you have to go backwards before you can go forwards. It, it's interesting. It's almost like the first rung of the ladder is below where you are. You have to descend first, take a step down before you can get on the ladder that takes you up. So I, I wanted to explore what does it mean to become poor in spirit? How do we, how do, we do that? What does that mean? In prior episodes uh, long ago when Shiloh kind of started this with me, we talked a lot about the emptying. And it's, it's a motif we keep coming back to because it's so important in terms of spiritual progression. Like you said, you have to empty yourself before you can be filled. You, ha- you have to have, Jesus can't fill an empty vessel. The Spirit can't fill, can't fill a full vessel. It has to fill an empty vessel. Same with the Spirit. And so beginning at the zero point or possibly below that is a necessary step to allowing that growth that doesn't come from the ego, but that comes from somewhere else. Yeah, let's face it, guys. The reason we talk about this first step so much is it's the step we're on. (laughs) Can you elaborate on that, Christopher? Well, we're all facing this, this dilemma of the true self and the false self, as we call it, uh, calling the, what normally in our religion is called the natural man, the false self, and our true self being that image of God in which we're created, that imago dei, and having to to come to terms with the reality that the false self that we're so attached to, which we've talked about, I think, in other episodes, whether in this podcast or in the Come Follow Me podcast from the Latter-day Peace Studies, is made up of all these false identities that we put on from the time that we that we that we come to Earth, and well, some some of them are put onto us by our parents to begin with. The idea that I'm a Latter Day Saint, I'm an American, I'm whatever it is I do for a living be, becomes something that I say after I am, when that's not who I am. When who I am is well, God. I'm, I'm made in the image of God, and that's my true self. Metaphysically, that's always who I am. Epistemologically, I'm not aware. I don't know who I am. I have to empty myself of all these false identities to get down to what in alchemical terms we call prima materia, right? To get down to the essence of who I really am. And how can I begin my ascent before that descent? I can't. Yes, exactly. In alchemy, we have, like you said, we have this exact same first rung of the ladder, the first operation. And every text is different. And so today I I have this list of, of seven operations. It's going to be different in every text, but this is kind of a, a common list of, of the seven operations to get to the Philosopher's Stone. And so the first step is called calcination. And the chemical operation of calcination is you, you gather your materials together and then you burn them. In a lot of the texts, you put them in a crucible and you put them in your furnace for 40 days. It's a very uncomfortable process physically. 
because you have to stay in the lab, you have to keep the fire stoked, you have to keep the furnace going, you're dealing with materials like sulfur, and so it's smelly, it's miserable, you're sweaty, you're hot. So the the inward work that's happening as you are breaking down these physical materials with fire is you're letting go of the ego, of these false selves, of these identities. And that's, you know, much more easily said than done. We have these attachments, and it's painful to let them go. And so this this first rung of the ladder toward the Philosopher's Stone, I think is directly correspondent to the first rung of the Beatitudes, of becoming poor in spirit, of emptying the vessel, of getting rid of all the the non-essential things, burning it down to its very essence, burning yourself down to its essence to find out who you really are and where you stand before God. So I, I think that, that right there, first step, we have a perfect correspondence. I'm reminded of Malachi 3 and 4 as referenced or quoted, Malachi 3 referenced, Malachi 4 quoted by Moroni to Joseph Smith from our recent, you know, Come Follow Me studies, because there's this image of the refiner's fire and fuller's soap. And there's there's somewhere else we read recently about burning like an oven. Do you guys remember that? And that seems like a pretty common phrase throughout scriptures that's oftentimes taken literally as a precondition to, or, or maybe just as a shortly after the second coming. Yeah, yes, it's often seen as a punishment. Yeah. When that's when that doesn't seem to be what it is. Mm. Yeah. So, so it is Malachi 4, verse 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall, shall be burn stubble. stubble. Right. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. So we're talking about a, a process of purification here, and going back to Malachi 3, same thing, right, with the refiner's fire. Well, and also and, the the neither root nor branch. I mean, we're that's another identification that is being torn away from us. You know, we might root ourselves in the identity of an American. We might root ourselves in the identity of a Latter-day Saint. But when all that stuff is burned away, what's left? One thing that I, that I think of as well, I think this ties into that Stoic principle that is also deeply enrooted in Christianity, which is the idea that you must die before you die, that you're going to be better off. Because, you know, in, in this verse in Malachi, the idea is that, you know, when when the Savior comes, those that are not prepared are going to have a difficult time. And so the idea is that we choose to have the difficult time, the difficult work of self-emptying, and therefore, by choosing to do it early, it's it's already done, and we can move forward, and we, we won't be stuck in this unconscious state. We've we've made the unconscious conscious. We've got we've chosen to take upon ourselves that burden. We've experienced that pain, and then we can we can move on with our lives and with our progression. Just like Christopher mentioned earlier, this this emptying is so much more a process than event. We're stuck in this phase because we're constantly layering new identities on ourselves. And I guess the difference is, is once you enter into this way, the way is it's more about awareness and recognition. It's like, oh, okay, I just reverted to that natural man again. 
I need to go through the emptying all over again and start over. And it's a constant process of emptying and being filled with the Spirit or with or with Jesus. And yeah, that's just and to get access to the lower rung of the ladder. Right. Step one. <laughs> and and at the same time, I think it takes us to the second rung. So the next beatitude after poor in spirit is blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. I think that that ties directly to this difficult work of self-emptying is mourning is such an important part of that. Psychologically, mourning is incredibly important. I, I have a friend who I was talking to him once. He had called me. Uh, he, he wanted me to counsel him as he was dealing with some difficult things. He mentioned these past mistakes he had made and that he just kept repeating them. And so as I was kind of reflecting back to him what he was saying, he suddenly had this epiphany of what was going on. He said, I keep repeating the same mistakes because I'm afraid to fully mourn the mistakes I've already made. Wow. He, he recognized that keeping it inside and, and not allowing the sorrow of the situation to fully express itself, he just kept repeating it. Yeah, you know, the, the process of mourning has everything to do with the fact that we have to die to the false self. We have to divest ourselves of these identities that we're so attached to that we think, well, as I said earlier, we say, I am, insert false identity here, right? So if we have to then divest ourselves of those false identities and we think that's who we are, that's going to be difficult. And, and it's going to be a, a process of, of dying and grieving, of mourning, and thankfully there's that comfort that follows. Yeah, so alchemically, the, the next phase that comes after the calcination or the, the burning the materials down to the prima materia is you then dissolve the prima materia. You dissolve the material, the ash that you've been burning for these 40 days, usually in water. Psychologically, in you know Jungian depth psychology, this represents this descent into the subconscious. You, you allow your conscious mind to release control, and then these parts of ourselves that we've hidden are allowed to, to resurface. And I think that, like I said, mourning is an important part of that. So like my friend that I mentioned, he was, instead of mourning these, these mistakes, he shoved them down under the surface of his subconscious where they continued to control him. And once he consciously allowed these unconscious problems to come up and, and that he could deal with them and mourn them, they no longer had that subconscious control. And so it's, it's really interesting. You, there's this idea in the psychology of alchemy on this, this step of dissolution that by letting go of, of conscious control, you are able to stop letting the subconscious control you as well. And these things can come up and be dealt with forthrightly, which is a huge part of repentance. And I think a, a big part of, of this becoming that we learn about in the Beatitudes. I've learned in my own experience that the things that, that we tend to shove into the closet really are running our lives. If we're not willing to sort of let them out of the closet and deal with them in the open, 
they're just going to be there running our lives. And I'm reminded again of that quote from Joseph Campbell that I brought up last time we had you on. In the cave you fear to enter lies the treasure you seek. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's a perfect uh, expression of, that, of the sentiment at play. By the way, going back to Malachi 3 again, you mentioned using the ash that comes from the burning in the oven in Malachi 4, we can say, is used and is then put into water. And that's part of the process in Malachi 3 of making the fuller soap, right? It's made with the ash. Mm, It's present there too. Yeah, that's right. That's how you make lye to make soap is you burn wood into ash and then you dissolve the ash in water. That's a great insight. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, so the third beatitude is, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I think the the big problem that comes with this one is, how do we define meek? Christopher, you're our our language expert. In, In the New Testament, in the New Testament Greek, do you happen to know what the word is that's rendered as meek and what it No, I don't. I haven't looked at it. Let me look at the Strong's entry. It says, right. I'm, I'm reading it right now. It says, apparently a primary word, mild, that is by implication, humble. Okay. So it's it's not so different from, from the way we use meek in English. This one, as I've, as I've kind of reviewed and I've, I've looked at these alchemical operations and I've looked at the Beatitudes... I think there's something there, but it's not as obvious as the first two we've discussed. So I want to get your insight on this. So the the next alchemical operation is separation. And so once the ash, the prima materia, is dissolved, then you filter it out. You then filter the water again. Whatever's left, you allow to dry. And then you, you go through this phase of separation. And, and so how can we relate developing meekness to this idea of, of separating and filtering out? Well, and I, I think it actually just relates right back to the prior operation. And, and I don't think we need to necessarily force all of these into a box. But if, I I, think so if I'm thinking about it, I'm, I'm thinking it's more sort of the outcome of dissolution is that breaking things down to their prima materia is kind of their basest, most humble state, if, if you want to try to use that same word, uh, the synonym for meekness. Uh, you're, you're using the, the most basic element. Yeah, and so all of these things, which, which we've talked about so far, has been kind of a, a debasement and this letting go. The three operations we've talked about so far, calcination, which is burning everything off, dissolution, which is dissolving it, and then separating, which is filtering, all three of these pertain to letting things go. The, these three operations as a whole are called the negretto in, in alchemy, which is just Latin for the blackening. So it's, it's this descent it's really interesting. We are ascending this ladder by, but so far the first few rungs have been descending and humbling and emptying. And so now we, we are at this state where we are meek and we are now ready to receive. So of course, as, as Jesus often does, he's going to turn, I think we'll see that he turns this whole hierarchy of, a, of an ascension 
on its head. And so it isn't surprising. And of course, it's in keeping with other ancient writings, you know, when it comes to uh, ascension texts, there is always uh, a katabasis, a going down before there's a, an abasis uh, of going up. Another image that, that relates to the, you know, looking at the, the Greek word for, for meek, it has to do with taming, right, with making mild. And, and when I say taming, you, if you thought of taming horses, that's actually part of the meaning, right, bridling. So you can think of, in terms of bridling your passions. Yes, absolutely. The next beatitude on the list of, of the ascension or up the ladder is, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I think that that now this marks a change in, in the direction that we're going. Up till now, like I mentioned, the, the first three rungs have been a descent and this, this emptying. But now we're talking about being filled, and we're told that that will happen to us if we hunger and thirst after righteousness. What does that mean, though? What do we do to hunger and thirst after righteousness? What does that look like practically? The first thing that came to my mind is being my response being sort of in between the two steps. I'm still thinking about the last step, right? If I, if I'm, if I have to bridle my passions that means that I have some appetites that aren't for righteousness. And so those have to be in check. That's the importance of the last step as it relates to this step. Once I've brighted those passions, once those appetites that aren't righteous appetites are in check, now I have the propensity for, rather, for righteous appetites. Righteousness has always been a very kind of amorphous word to me. As long as I've known about the word, I've always thought of it as some level of goodness or purity. And going back again to the Strong's Concordance, and I'm not a purely contextual reader, but I think this might be instructive. It says, equity of character or act, specifically Christian justification. That's that's a different feeling than I get from thinking of it as some level of purity or, or goodness. Equity. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, Morgan, that this is sort of a turning point or maybe a middle point of the Beatitudes where we had just undergone the catabasis of descent. Perhaps now we've reached that point of equity where we can start to make the move upward. I think of righteousness as having desires. We're talking about desires here, having desires that are in alignment with the Lord's desires for us. Yeah, I like that. I like that because yeah. it, you're you're you've let go of what you thought you were, and maybe all that's left is just the desire for goodness, a desire for God Himself, a yearning. Yeah, for God. absolutely. As it would happen in alchemy, this next phase is the first part of what's called the conjunction. And so up till now, these other phases have all been about breaking down and separating. But now, this is the first time where you start to bring some of these things you've separated back together. And, and that brings about new substances to be working on. So there's usually, you know, these, these speaking chemically, there's chemical reactions as you start to bring these things together. 
and it, it brings about entirely new substances. And I think that as we hunger and thirst after righteousness and we open ourselves up to be filled and to have this union with God, we become a new creature. One thing that, that Carl Jung said is that people are like chemicals. If there is any reaction at all upon their meeting, then a transformation occurs. And I think that happens when we hunger and thirst after righteousness and we, we empty enough to this point where, where God can come in, we are changed and transformed by that union. You know, mystics for centuries have talked about the ecstasy of this experience. It, it brings about an actual chemical change within you and, and brings about these, these incredible feelings. And that's, that's an experience that, you know, I, I can say that I've had a few times in my life. It, it really is transformative. And it's, you can really see why the alchemists were so easily able to make comparisons between their spiritual transformational experience and the chemical experience. Because as, as they're in their laboratory and they're combining these materials and they're seeing you know, flames and sparks and smoke and all of this stuff coming out of it. The same thing happens in a transformative experience when, when there's two people involved, whether that's a spiritual experience with God or a romantic experience or just one of those deep transcendent experiences where you meet someone that you click with and that you, you react with, for lack of a better term. And sparks fly, right? <laughs> That's right. There's, I'd there's like fireworks. To, I'd like to introduce a, an image here from Sufism. Sufism being the the mystical side of of Islam, of the Islamic tradition. Perhaps listeners are familiar with Rumi, the 13th century Persian poet, who happens to be the best-selling poet in America today through Coleman Barks' translations. The, the Sufi poet writes love poetry. And if you read it, it sounds like a man writing to a woman who he's in love with. And there's also talk of drinking wine, which of course is prohibited in Islam. Yet there it is in the Sufi poetry and that intoxication, which is spoken of in that poetry, really is an intoxication with, uh, with the lover and the lover is God. And because these are men writing this poetry, it took me a while to come to this insight and it was through um, Llewellyn Von Lee who's a Sufi who was being interviewed on Oprah's Super Soul, what is it called, Super Soul Sunday? And he mentioned in passing, it was just, it was a huge opening for me, that when a Sufi is yearning for God, this goes back to being filled, right? Being open to being filled, being empty and being open to being filled. He is rather even though the, the one writing is a, a man, and I think he's writing to a woman, and of course it's God uh, who he's really writing about, who's the, the lover. But it turns out that he's in the feminine position, if you will. He's, he's in a passive, open, receptive position, waiting to be filled by God, waiting for God to show up whenever God is ready to show up and fill him with his spirit. And I think we have very similar imagery in Christianity. The church is compared to a bride waiting for the bridegroom to come. 
I keep having this image of this uh, uh, with with respect to this last beatitude of the woman in the crowd of people that's thronging Jesus that reaches out to touch the hem of his garment. And earlier, Christopher, you talked about yearning a desire for God to be with them or to fill them. And of course, this woman was suffering from an issue of blood, which, you know, you could look at that symbolically as obviously an emptying, uh, literal and, and symbolically. But uh, that's the one I can't help shaking as I read that and how just simply touching the hem of his garment filled her just as promised in this beatitude that if uh, you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you'll, you'll be filled. Yeah, even such that he himself felt an emptying out of himself. Don't you love well, that? At least, maybe I shouldn't say emptying because he could, he could fill her without being emptied at all, but he did feel something flowing out of him. Virtue. Righteousness, he said. Virtue, Virtue right? Yeah. Virtue, yeah. So moving on to the next beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Yes, I've been very excited to talk about this one because I think there's a really cool correspondence with the operations of alchemy. So the the next operation, after you've had this, this first conjunction where you've begun to bring materials together, then you ferment them. There's, there's fermentation which is, of course, this, this breaking down. I, I actually am a, a fermentation hobbyist. Um, I, I love to ferment stuff. My, my big thing is I make homemade fermented sodas. And one of my books that I got some of my knowledge from on, on the subject as I've been doing my experiments is it, it defines fermentation as a controlled rot. And which isn't very appetizing, but it's true. One of the, the first things I made, it was back when I was living in Oregon and up in the Pacific Northwest, blackberries are a noxious wheat. They, they were introduced several years ago and now they grow everywhere. And so in late summer, there's just this abundance of blackberries. And so I decided to, to make a blackberry soda. So what I did is I, I took a half gallon jar I dissolved some sugar and some water. I went out and collected a bunch of blackberries, mashed them all up, and then put them in the jar with the sugar water. And then I left it on a shelf in the garage for two days in, in the heat of the summer. And what happens is the natural yeasts that are growing on the outside of the fruit get to work consuming the sugar, producing carbon dioxide. So after you let it sit and, and essentially rot is what's happening for a few days, then you, you filter out the solids, you put them in a bottle, you seal it, and then as the fermentation continues, the carbon dioxide gets captured and it carbonates the soda. In case people are wondering, there is a negligible amount of alcohol that is formed in this process, <laughs> but you don't let it go long enough to, to actually become wine. And so... What I, I think is so interesting about that process is, like we mentioned, the first three operations or the first three Beatitudes were this self-emptying, and it involved suffering. After that, it kind of seemed like we were off the hook, but there's still some breaking down that needs to happen, and I think that that comes about in the call to be merciful. 
because being merciful isn't always easy. It takes even more detachment from the ego, which calls for justice. And so when we forgive and, and choose to be merciful and choose to be forgiving, it's, it's this continuation of this, this breaking down. And so the, the work is not done just after the first couple phases. There's still some difficult things that need to happen, some difficult detachments that need to occur as we continue through the, prog- through the process. I'm not sure I followed. I'm not sure I got the relationship between the fermentation and the beatitude. Okay. Let me, let me put it another way. In my work at, at the company I work for, one of my roles is to help, help people in the company to adopt our company culture. We have these, these values that we've chosen as a company, and I help mentor and coach people in the company to better embody these values. And as I thought about it, so I have this hobby of, of fermentation, right, which is dealing with these cultures of yeast and bacteria. And then in my work, I'm working with these values and trying to build a culture at work with these values. And as I was thinking about this, I realized that that's not two different ways of using the term culture. It's right. the same. To, to culture comes, you know, from the same root as cultivate. It's to grow and to, to develop something. And so in alchemy, this is the phase where you, you culture the materials and, and further transformation takes place. In this work with the Beatitudes, I think mercy is the culture that we're asked to develop within ourselves and as a community of disciples. I think one way perhaps that we could define Zion is a culture of mercy that prevails in a society of people. Oh, I like that. I do too. I was just actually going to bring up that idea of a culture of mercy. And I love how you led, led us through the progression there because I was, I was a little bit behind on the fermentation as well, Christopher. So don't feel alone there. But what does a culture of mercy look like to you, Morgan? That's a, a really tough question. <laughs> Let me insert this while Morgan's thinking about that question. It occurred to me, listening to you, Morgan, that we actually speak of our culture or, yeah, the culture of the time, right? What, what, what the Germans call Zeitgeist, which we actually have borrowed into our language, the spirit of the times, as a ferment, right? As a cultural ferment. What is, the, what is the cultural ferment out of which certain ideas arise, we say, in, in thinking of the history of ideas? What if we could culture? We want to build Zion. What kind of culture do we need to ferment to build Zion? Yes, exactly. That's, that's, that's the question that I would like to ask as well. Some of the ideas that, that immediately come is you know if we if we're going to to ferment this this culture of mercy it really is dependent upon the steps that come before it and i think that's that's part of the genius of the sermon on the mount is you have a hard time being merciful 
unless you've done the work of the previous phases. I think that that emptying yourself makes you more merciful and more empathetic. I think that that mourning allows you to understand once you understand the process of mourning because you've gone through it yourself, then you are able to mourn with those that mourn and to to give of yourself in that way, which of course is is part of our baptismal covenant. That and, reminds me of the sorry, that reminds me of the twelfth step in the twelve step program. Oh. The one where the step where you give back, right? Where you have been through the recovery process and now you can mourn with those who are mourning. You can really be a support like no one else can to those who are going through that thing that you've been through because you've been through it and because yeah. you got through it. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that, you know, if, if you haven't mourned, then when you are called upon to mourn with someone else, you can't offer empathy. You may be able to offer sympathy, right. but you're not able to, to truly mourn with them because you don't know how. You haven't done it. And so I think that, that all of these previous steps build up this culture of mercy. And so I, I think that that might be the answer to your question. You know, How do we build a culture of mercy that, that will enculturate and ferment a Zion society? I think the answer is each of the Beatitudes before this point naturally lead to it. That, that nine, does answer to the bottom rung. <laughs> that does answer the question of how we get there. The question I asked was what it looks like. And I think in Christopher bringing up Zion, that's a big part of it. And I think we've, we've had these ideal visions of what Zion looks like where we're all, you know, out on farms, self sustainability, <laughs> everyone playing their part and equally pulling their weight. And we're all of one heart and one mind. And I, I think of it now that we've brought up this idea of culture of mercy in terms of how we treat each other, thinking the best of each other, extending mercy when we might disagree personally with someone's opinions or attitudes. And you can't do that without having done that work that Morgan brings up leading up to it of letting go of your identities. I have this tremendous problem with wanting to be right. And I think I share this with a lot of people. And I've heard, I've read a quote, and I, I'm going to butcher this, but it's basically saying, you know, it's it's better to be kind than to be right, something like that. And I think that's kind of where this plays into, because if you've let go of your identities, you feel less of a need to be right. And it's easier to just extend mercy to someone, again, that you might disagree with for ideological reasons or whatever, philosophical reasons. But if you can extend mercy to them, then you're seeing beyond the ideology and into the person. And that might be ideology. an indication. Go ahead. Sorry, ideology is really a problem today. And, and it really is all about attachment, right? It's about an attachment. Of course, so look, we're, we're all attached to being right. That's one level of the problem, right? I say, I say we're all, at least Riley and I are. So we're attached to being right. That's one problem. Now let's take that to the next level and make it even more of a problem. Now we're attached to not just I'm right, but there's this, there's this way of looking at the world that is the only right way of looking at the world. And it's not just mine. There are all these people on my side, and we have the right way of looking at the world. And your way of looking at the world, the way of looking at the world on the other side, is wrong. 
and there's no openness to the other side's views, and there's no openness to the possibility of we're all wrong together. We only have, as to go back to the Sufis again, one guy's holding on to the trunk of an elephant, the other guy's holding on to the leg, and neither one of them knows what an elephant is. There's one guy holding on to the ear. Ask these guys, what's an elephant? And they've got hold of one, and they're not going to agree on what an elephant is. One, one thing that, that comes to mind for me as well, thinking about this culture of mercy, is I think it ties into what Jesus says later in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about some of the practical applications. He says that, you know, when you are smitten on the cheek to turn the other cheek also, which is a call to not be attached to retaliation. Right. And what I think of there is if, to, to use Jesus's specific example, if someone comes up and, and slaps me in the cheek, my sense of justice demands that I retaliate, that I slap them, and even more. A culture of mercy instead internalizes that pain. It's, okay, you've done wrong, now I have to suffer for it. And a culture of mercy is, I'm going to choose to suffer well, instead of create more suffering to appease my own sense of justice. Of course, the ultimate example of this is is the example of Jesus Christ. Now, Morgan, you gave a, a sacrament talk recently that uh, you shared uh, shared with me, and there's if there is that sense of justice, which I think is something that you know I don't know if it's if it's learned or if it's innate. It certainly is taught to us as children if it isn't already innate. That has to, there's this sense of someone has to pay for this injustice, right? There has to be, somebody has to pay the price. And you talked about that uh, in your last sacrament talk that you shared with me. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so this idea really revolutionized my idea of justice. And it it came to me as I was doing a lot of this self-emptying work. I had, had kind of figured out this methodical way for me to, to do this work, and it involved a lot of writing exercises and, and other things. And as I was going through these exercises and, and doing this, it, it stirred up a lot of unsettled things from, from my subconscious, from, from deep in my spirit. With that came a lot of anger, because I, I remembered a lot of things that had a lot of slights against me and a lot of wrongs against me. As I was thinking about these things, I knew intuitively because I had, you know, grown up with the scriptures and I, I knew the teachings of Jesus that it was on me to forgive. But I had a hard time forgiving because I had this idea that if I forgave them, they would be off the hook. And that justice wouldn't be served if I forgave them as, as I had learned that I should. From this came this revelation, this revelatory experience, where I was reminded that I am not the arbiter of justice. Justice works independently of me. 
my choice to forgive and to let go doesn't negate justice at all because justice is is not my in my domain of control as i thought about that i i just i still struggled with it and then i was further taught that if i absolutely was was going to demand justice that i should be satisfied by jesus's suffering that when i have these times where i've been wronged and i i my the very depth of my soul calls out for justice against those that have wronged me and you 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 base you really just have this idea that someone ought to suffer for this and then that's when jesus steps in and says well i did and let that be enough for you let that satisfy you that revolutionized my discipleship because up until then if you had asked me you know what did the atoning sacrifice of Jesus do? I would have said it satisfied the demands of justice. And that's a great theological answer. In some um, abstract sense, right? Yes, exactly. But that's yeah. all it is. Whose demands a, of justice? Exactly. Question, right? God's demands exactly. of justice? And it's it's this theological question. And, and so we as Latter-day Saints, you know, we... Because of our, our doctrines and everything, you kind of end up with this idea that there is this abstract idea called justice that God himself is beholden to, and that that's what Jesus died to satisfy. The problem with that is, you know, there's nothing transformational about that. You just think, oh, thank goodness Jesus satisfied justice. That means there's a way for me to be off the hook <laughs> for my sins. But... The, the inner meaning of that, to talk about the exoteric and the esoteric, which is a big theme of this podcast, the, I would say the esoteric meaning of the, the statement that Jesus' death satisfied the demands of justice is that it ought to satisfy our demand for justice. And in, in Jacob 1, verse 8, Jacob teaches the Nephites that they ought to view his death. And I think that, that that ties directly into this. I think that if we have a proper image of what the atonement was in its full horrificness, to coin a new term, I think that we would be satisfied I think that we would lose interest in justice if we fully understood what the concept of justice did to our Savior. We would instead plead for mercy if, if we fully viewed what happened and, and had a, a visceral understanding of what Jesus went through for us. I think it would satisfy us. And then yeah. it, it becomes easy to forgive because, you know, it's like, well, Maybe not easy, but it becomes easier to forgive because it's like, okay, like, I know what justice does, and I don't want that to happen again. And so I'm willing to extend mercy. I want to live in a culture of mercy. And it, it changes our hearts. It's, it's transformational. Yeah, if I were put through anything near what Jesus was put through, I'd be asking for mercy. And I think what you're pointing to is the idea that even if it weren't me going through it, if I just saw a fellow human being, yet alone God going through it for me, I think my 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 demands for justice 
would be, I think that that beast would be, um, how should I say, tamed, right? I think I think that beast would be tamed, and I would be asking for mercy even for the other, even for Jesus Christ. I think it also changes the perspective of Jesus suffering for their sins that they committed against you to you taking up your cross and following Jesus and forgiving the person who sinned against you, offering or extending them mercy. So somewhat depersonalizing the mercy aspect from Jesus to you and extending it outward to others that wrong you. And uh, that's transformational, as you said. Yes. And, and that's, that's culture. You know, we, we let Jesus and his spirit culture us, enter into us, change us into something else. And that's exactly what the alchemical phase of, of fermentation was. It was, it was bringing in this this culture to these materials you've been working with and allow it to ferment and, and transform into something else. I think that there's a, a direct spiritual parallel to that. And I think that a, a culture of mercy is something that we should be saturated with. And I think that's what this particular beatitude, this rung on the ladder, demands of us is to to become this empty vessel that can then be filled with this, this culture of mercy. Excellent. Well, let's get on to the next one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This one sounds a little bit alchemical. <laughs> it does. And uh, believe it or not, on my list, the next phase I have is distillation. So after, after fermentation comes distillation. Distillation is simply heating up your materials again and then cooling off what steam comes off of it, distilling it into something else. And so distillation is really the best way to purify something because it, you know, you can, you can burn and filter and all of these things, but you're still going to end up with, with some, some gunk in there. But when you distill something, you really make it pure. And so I think it's really interesting that now on our beatitude ladder, we're called to be pure in heart. And on our alchemical ladder, we are distilling our materials to get them as pure as we possibly can. I, I think that's really cool. But it's, it's kind of meaningless unless we talk about what it really means to be pure in heart. So I, I'd like to get both of your ideas on, on what that might look like. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the specific apostle who, when he was called by Jesus, was described as being a man without guile. Remember who that was? Was it Nathan? Or who was that? Nevertheless, that, that's kind of what I think is someone who is not motivated by getting gain or one-upsmanship against someone else. But there's there's just a purity about the way that they approach life and approach their fellow man. What do you think, Christopher? What does it mean to be pure in heart? The thing that comes to my mind when I think of purity of heart has everything to do with intention. And I speak often of intention in the podcast. I've repeated 
often this idea that that is actually from from the Bible that says that if we perform rituals, if we if we say a prayer and we don't say it with pure intent, that not only does it not count against not not count for us, but it actually counts against us. It really is it's beyond ineffective, right? It's it has a negative effect. And so purity to me means having the right intent. That's one mm-hmm. that's one part of it at least, right? Having the right intent. Yeah. I think so too. And I think that and and related to that is when I think of something pure, I some of the other ideas that come with an idea of purity is like clarity. Like pure water is clear water. And so I think with with purity comes this idea of transparency. And so I think that when we're pure in heart, we are transparent with others about our motivations. We we get rid of these ulterior motives. Jordan Peterson is um, we we talked a little bit about him in the last podcast too. He was in a lot of ways my big introduction to a lot of these ideas of depth psychology and Carl Jung and it was Carl Jung who did all this psychological interpretation of alchemy and and really formulated these theories about its meaning. So a couple of years ago, I saw Jordan Peterson in Seattle. At the end of his presentation, there was a, a Q&A, a question and answer period. And someone submitted this question that I was actually surprised he chose it because it seemed just really odd and mundane. But the question was, why are humans psychologically attracted to gemstones? Peterson gave this really interesting answer. He said, you know, like a diamond is is chemically the same as coal, right? It's it's carbon. But because of the heat and pressure and, and these other operations that happen in the earth, we can we can tie this to alchemy too, I think. It's uh it becomes clear. And the only difference between a clear diamond and dark black coal is the way that its internal structure is aligned. You can take carbon atoms and they're not transparent at all, but if you align them correctly, then it becomes transparent. And and depth psychologists kind of tend to get out in the weeds and they kind of get <laughs> into some weird ideas, but he talked about how that can be applied to humans as well. You know, we are a, a, we are attracted to people that are transparent, that that have this proper alignment internally, and we we tend to kind of intuitively tell that. Often we we can be deceived as well, but when we meet someone that is is aligned properly internally and is transparent and honest, you you don't get the sense that they have any ulterior motives and that, you know, really what you see is what you get. You're attracted to that. Then he kind of laughed. He said, and you thought you just like diamonds because they're sparkly, which probably is the true answer. But there's, there is kind of this, <laughs> this alchemical idea, this, this correspondence between the way that humans are psychologically and spiritually and the way that the diamonds are chemically. I think that that's what it means to be pure in heart is is to let go of these ulterior motives is to be totally transparent and honest with ourselves with others and with God and that's that's ultimately the the thing that 
the blessing that comes with being pure in heart is that you will see God. And so I think there's this there's this interplay there. It's the idea that if you allow yourself to be seen by God, by being transparent before him, then you're able to see him too. There's a Sufi text that you and I have read, Morgan, The Alchemy of Happiness by Al-Ghazali, who died in 1111, the second most important figure in the Islamic tradition after the Prophet Muhammad, in which he speaks of the soul as a mirror that has to be polished. That comes to mind, right? Because you polish the mirror so that you can see the reflection of God in yourself as you are made in the image of God, right? And it points to another idea, another meaning of purity for me, which is sincerity, which of course is related to the the last answer I gave, but still distinct, right? And it's it relates to what I think uh, what Riley was saying, right? With being without guile, having having a sincerity, mm-hmm. a genuineness, this is considered purity, right? Well, I'm reminded of another scripture that that uses that same phrase, without guile, in D&C 121, by kindness and pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile. It's that, that same sense of transparency that allows you to see through the walls or the false identities that we put up in front of ourselves to make ourselves look better into the humble meekness of that image of God within. Yeah, and the word and pure shows up there too. I'm sorry? And the word pure. Oh yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Pure knowledge. Yeah, and I as as you were saying that I was thinking about that, I thought, what is what is pure knowledge? You know, knowledge is knowledge. But I think that, you know, knowledge is is useless unless you're using it. And so knowledge can be pure by using it purely, using it with proper intention and without deceit, without guile, or you can use the same knowledge for your own gain in these unseemly ways and with guile. And I think that is the difference between pure knowledge and impure knowledge is the, the guile or lack thereof that you bring to it as you use it. Yeah, you know, that reminds me of a quote again from Al-Ghazali who said, knowledge without work is insanity. So knowledge without action is insanity. And action without knowledge is vanity. Know that any science which does not remove you today far from apostasy and does not carry you to obedience will not remove you tomorrow from the fire of hell. And that's why I'm glad we're talking about how to apply this, right? How do we, what do we do with this knowledge? Yeah, we advance it. We use it, put it into action. That's and the, so we've gone over some steps, right, of how to put how to put this knowledge into action. Have we gone all the way up the ladder, though? No, no, we have not. Here we are at uh, looks like the eighth. No, sorry, the seventh beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And so, understanding this is a ladder, knowing that each rung is dependent upon the rung below it. I think that that answers our question is, you know, if if we have this knowledge and we're using it with pure intent, without guile, that's going to lead us to desire peace. And and the actions we take will be to bring about peace. And, you know, we just said that we would, in the last round, that we would seek God 
that presence of God is is known in the in the Jewish mystical tradition of Kabbalah as the Shekinah, right? The the peace or presence of God. So in 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 Kabbalah, am I understanding you correctly that that the presence of God and the peace of God are synonymous? That's what I'm saying, yeah. That okay. the that the Shekinah, which is understood to be the divine presence, which is you know, it's conventionally represented as as light, again as this clarity, right? And is is the is a peace, right? And once we find that peace, and once that when when I say we when we find that peace, when we find that peace within us, when we are at peace, then again now we're building sign, right? Now that peace emanates outward from us, and it becomes something that we share. What I, I think this actually lines up pretty well with the overarching discussion of the alchemical process, because once we've established a purity of heart, seen God, and started to partake of the peace that is God, his presence, then we are joined with him in the work of making peace. It's almost that coagulation. I don't know if that was the next step on your ladder alchemically, Morgan, but it seems to fit. Yep. That's exactly the, the, the seventh operation on the list I'm working on is, is coagulation. And it's, it's this idea that once you've distilled your material, now it's in its pure form. And according to some of these alchemical texts, once you, you distill it into its purity, it then coagulates and solidifies. It transforms to a solid state. That's the philosopher's stone. You've done it. You have it. With the Philosopher's Stone, you can then do all kinds of things. You can transmute lead to gold. You can create the elixir of life. You can create the universal solvent. All of these things that the alchemists were hoping to have the power to do at the end of their work are made possible by this by this Philosopher's Stone. And so, assuming that there is correspondence between these two systems of thought, these seven operations and these eight or nine beatitudes, depending on how you count them, the final step in alchemy where you reach the stone is equated on the beatitude ladder with reaching peace and becoming a peacemaker, which I think is is really cool and really instructive. Yeah, and you know, you have at this point with the Philosopher's Stone, you, you mentioned the idea of, of turning lead into gold and of creating the elixir of life. And to, th- to talk about those in practical terms, well, look, I mean, if you have a mirror that that isn't clean, you can think of that as lead, right? And to be able to actually polish that mirror, you can think of as turning it into gold. And that's a process that, again, is now going to reflect your true nature. And when it comes to the elixir of life, well, Christ is at the pinnacle of this, he's the, he's the expounder and the exemplar of these teachings, right? And he's at the pinnacle of the, at the top of this ladder. And what he's offering us is eternal life, to know God. He himself and, is the way, the truth, and the life. Exactly. And another one of his titles, of course, is the Prince of Peace. Yes. And, and so we, we have someone... Like you just said, Riley, he's the way, the truth, the life, the prince of peace. He's all of these things. All of these things are embodied in him. 
And so in some way, these are all the same thing or, or different facets of the nature of Jesus Christ, the nature that, that we are called to imitate and to, to bring about in ourselves and to transform into. And the one that's there all along, underneath the false identities, the one that the, the one that's that mirror that needs polishing, that needs purifying, that this alchemical process can get us through and, and get us to that place of being again like God. So I want to open up this question on the last Beatitudes, two of them, which are they correspond to each other. They're very closely related. That has to do with persecution. And I know this, this last rung of the alchemical ladder is, is basically to obtain the tincture, which is the very essence, or as you called it, the elixir of life. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is there a better description of Jesus in mortality? and how he lived and what he accomplished than being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Is that the essence of Christianity or the tension? I think it's supposed to be. I think that this is where one of the places where modern Christianity kind of gets stuck is we have this persecution complex, and it's not in the way that's illustrated in the Beatitudes. I, I saw a meme recently that... I think it was a picture of from a Bugs Bunny cartoon and Bugs Bunny's like fainting and like <laughs> he's he's not doing well. And the caption is when you're a jerk online and somebody calls you out for it because you're supposed to be a Christian and then you die of persecution. <laughs> 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 and it's true, oh you know, Jesus I, I think we, we really messed this one up. <laughs> And we, we choose to think we're being persecuted for, for righteousness sake, when really we're just being called out for not embodying the things that we claim we do. And this sort of plays into the prosperity gospel as well. We, we kind of have this transactional idea of Christianity that if we live a certain way, we are rewarded. Most of the time we interpret that to mean mortally, but when it doesn't happen, we always have that fallback excuse that it's, oh, it's just going to happen in the eternities somewhere. When in reality, kind of the, the tincture, the pureness, the purity of, of living as a Christian disciple is a willingness to be persecuted for the sake of his name, for righteousness sake. It's a tough pill to swallow. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. Then after we, we reach that eighth beatitude, of being persecuted for righteousness sake we are told that we receive the kingdom of heaven which is of course the the ultimate goal of the christian is to live with christ forever in his kingdom in his father's kingdom and then that's really the top of the ladder and then we receive this this benediction in verse 11, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. So like you were saying, Riley, that's kind of a restatement of that last beatitude. And that really is the culmination. And so the only difference you know, Jesus, that I recognize in that, and, and maybe some others don't, but th this one isn't categorical. He is speaking to the multitudes that are gathered around him and he's personalized it. And he says, blessed are ye. 
It's the only beatitude where he says, blessed are ye. On all the other ones, he says, blessed are they or the. He's categorizing a certain group of people who will be blessed. In this one, he says, blessed are ye. And I, I think that's such a perfect, like you say, a personalization, because up until this point, it seems like he's talking about these different groups of people out there. And then at or, the or, end... Or if and when, mm -hmm. yeah, you would, you would become that. Yeah. And then at the end comes this this identification that he's he's been talking about me this whole time. And it's not an and if it happens. He says, blessed are ye when men shall revile you. As if mm -hmm. to say, this is coming, but just recognize that this is part of being a disciple and, and the blessing is, is that you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Exactly. And we, we don't, we're not supposed to take upon ourselves this persecution complex, but instead to, to continue in that culture of mercy and to, to suffer for others' sake, just as Jesus did, and to allow his death to be a model for us in that suffering so that we suffer well and so that we, we become, it, it really is this transformational thing. And that's, that's what alchemy is all about. It's this projection of human transformation into the transformation of matter so that it can be better understood and better analyzed. I think we did a good job of that. I think that I, I really enjoyed this discussion because I think we, I came into this with a goal to see what these alchemical operations could teach us about application of the Beatitudes. I think we achieved that today. Yeah, I, I certainly learned more about the Beatitudes by looking at them through that lens. Yeah, there's just one more thing I'd like to say in closing, and then if you guys have any final comments, I think we can wrap up. You know, in, in being persecuted and in being Christ-like, we have to remember, too, his teaching to love our enemies to bless those that curse us. And even, you know, when it comes to walking, to going the extra mile, remember that that's, you're talking about the arch enemy of the Jew who is waiting, by the way, for the Christ who's teaching this lesson of loving your enemy to come and destroy their enemy. And that enemy's present. And that enemy not only is occupying the ancient Israelite, the, the ancient Jew, but asking him to then carry burden of the soldier who, who keeps him under his boot, so to speak, right, under his sandal, and to, to actually carry his burden, that's what we're being asked to do. Amen. Do you guys have, <laughs> amen. Do you guys have anything you want to add to in closing? No, I just want to thank Morgan for, for being with us and, again, teaching us a little bit more about alchemy and how to apply it and how it can uh, really enhance our spiritual practice. So thank you, Morgan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And like I, I said at the beginning, I, I didn't necessarily come into this with any preconceived notions. I just wanted to to go through both of these ladders with both of you and see what insight we could draw out. And I certainly came away edified. So thank you so much for having me on. I, I definitely have learned a lot from having this discussion with you today. Same here. Thanks. Thanks to you, Morgan. Yeah, I think we all had a sense. Uh, the idea was sparked in us last time we talked uh, on the last podcast we had you on that 
that there might be correspondences between the alchemical process we were discussing then and the Beatitudes, and I think that we found that there are. Thank you, Morgan. Well, for Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Christopher Hurtado. I'm Riley Risto. Thanks for being with us. We look forward to joining you again next time.